Welcome to the IP2 Podcast. I'm Shay Ashby, and as always, I'm joined by Felix Chung. We have another special guest joining us this week. We are pleased to be joined by Ryan Wood this week, and I struggled to think of a place to start with his list of accolades. He is the leader of the Judge Community Representative Program, as well as being a prolific judge, not only for our FAB community, but also for other TCGs, such as Magic and Pokemon. He has experience at approximately 90 calling-sized events between Magic and FAB, and he was the head judge or team lead at over 10 FAB events, including Worlds, Pro Tours, Nationals, Callings, and more. On top of all of that, he is a current employee at an LGS, Kraken Cards. And from a personal note, I know him for doing the Ryan squat next to tables as he's making calls and rulings. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, nice to see you both. And Felix, nice to see you again. Uh, things are well in my side of the world. How are things for you two? Wow, thank you so much for asking. We are taking cover from some wildfire smoke here in, in Calgary, and it is really hot out to boot. But uh, besides that, I'm, I'm doing all right, Shay. Same. Yeah, the smoke is a little rough, but I'm also doing well. So what is the Ryan squat? Is it the same thing as like a slab squat? <laughs> So sort of, um, I have hypermobile joints, but, uh, that also leads to issues with a lack of muscle mass and being old. Uh, so often when I get to a table, uh, if there is space for me in between the two players, uh, that I'm standing next to, uh, I inform the players with a little joke, uh, that's like, Hey, I'm going to kneel down for a sec. My knees are old. It's better for me this way. Uh, it adds a little bit of like a personability with the players immediately as I get involved with their table. Uh, but then also it does save my painful knees and feet from having to do even more work. So that's more or less what it is. Yeah, interesting. I always kneel because I feel awkward standing over the players. Like when I go mm -hmm. talk to them, I feel like it's a dominating position that I'm not comfortable with because I want to be seen as an equal. So that's, uh, that's why I squat. That's a really common um, technique, actually. Um, there's a friend of mine from... The northeast of the U.S., uh, he's from various locations. I don't exactly recall where he's from right now, but uh, he does a lot of presentations about body language as a judge uh, because he is a very large individual who is mm. very threatening when you look at him. Uh, he's also very loud. And so he often has to perform these special body language signals to the players to sort of make them feel more at home. And that's definitely something that uh, is a part of the reason that I kneel. I make the joke that it's about my knees, but that is definitely also part of yeah. it. Uh, and then also if things get worse, you can stand up to command that like dominating. No. Okay. You two are getting in each other's face. Now it's my show. Nice. I never thought of that. That's actually a really good tip to be able to stand up to take control of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, just to be cognizant of the fact that if there is something that you're trying to handle, even from a customer service perspective, it's a, it's a lot more personable to be at eye level so, uh, with someone than having them stare at your belly, for example, as you're <laughs> yeah, as you're just talking. Yeah. So, no, that's that's a wonderful tip. Well, let's just dive right into it. And and Ryan, just a little bit behind the scenes, I asked you a couple very simple questions. Uh, mm -hmm as as we got talking about having you on the show and in response to my two point form questions you wrote me like a 600 page novel 
there were like houses and Tom Bombadil, I think was in there somewhere. It was, it was quite entertaining. But uh, uh, if I could ask you just to give me a quick elevator pitch into who you are. Sure. Sorry, ahead of time, I do tend to be a little bit uh, long winded and I speak quickly to compensate for that. But uh, the essay sort of boiled down uh, my background in card games is more or less, I learned magic at a very young age, rediscovered it around 2009, uh, didn't realize the game still existed 10 years later, was very excited to relearn the game, started playing locally uh, and with friends. My first competitive event was four years later, and I certified as a magic judge a year after that in October of 2014. Uh, I reached level two for magic six months on the dot uh, directly after that in April. I currently reside, uh, sorry, I guess continuing beyond magic, I suppose. Um, I have played magic since then. Uh, during the pandemic, I stopped because I don't really have any sort of uh, online inventory at all. I just have physical cards and I didn't want to reinvest into an online card game. Uh, and that's when I picked up the Pokemon trading card game because it is very easy to get into the game online, especially since I did not own any physical cards outside of one expanded deck from 2014 or so. Shortly after the COVID pandemic was starting to lift a little bit locally, uh, I opened uh, or was working for a company that opened a local game store. Uh, InkedGaming.com has a local game store now that is a subsidiary of their company, uh, and that is Kraken Cards. And the owner is aware of my skill set and decided that he wanted to open a store. At that time, also, uh, we had a few players that were friends with a good friend of mine who is now my manager, and they were pushing me to start carrying Flesh and Blood, uh, as well as running events for that game. And I had no idea what it was. I said, how do I do this? Give me a sales pitch. And they explained it as it's magic, but you play best of one. There's drafts, there's 50 minute formats, and there's 30 minute formats. And I'm like, great. So you've constructed limited run tournaments. Awesome. Uh, and so I started playing shortly after that. I think an Arcane Rising draft was my first event, uh, but it was shortly after Monarch came out, if memory serves. We just had a box of Arcane Rising. And I picked up the game from there, had no idea what I was doing, read the comprehensive rules in a day and went, I still don't know what I'm doing. Felt more like a quick start guy because I'm used to the roughly 300 page document that is Magic's comprehensive rules. <laughs> and from there, uh, I certified as a judge I got to go to the uh, world premiere for Tales of Aria. And this was supposed to be an elevator pitch. I forgot about that. It's Long story okay. short. The, the train is off the rails. Just just finish it. <laughs> uh, so Tales of Aria, I went to just to see the event, see what it was, uh, who was judging it, that kind of stuff. Uh, sort of reignited my love for working large events and fell down the rabbit hole per se um the stuff in that would have been i believe 2020 uh i didn't really work anything in 2020 my only event that i worked would have been us nets slash the calling in orlando uh, where i got battle promoted to the unified deck checks lead for both events uh because the deck check lead could not make it that weekend and i was the next most senior person on staff and at that time i would not have considered myself at all worthy of that position but luckily things didn't burn too much so a quick sort of where I live and what my local community looks like. Uh, I live in Corvallis, Oregon, which is in the Pacific Northwest. 
It's a small town of roughly 70,000 people, and it's a rotating population of college students and people who have retired and have kids. That's literally it. There's nobody my age in the town minus the people who have not gotten out yet. Mm. Uh, local community-wise, uh, that once again kind of sums it up. It's a bunch of college students, uh, people who don't have enough money, or uh, the adults that have a, an actual job, kids, or have retired. All right, I'm I'm gonna stop you right there. Actually, I I know I gave you the direction to to keep the train rolling, but uh, we're gonna have to pull it back a, a little bit. And there's so many little pins that that I do want want to put in so many things that you said. And I I would like to go back um, just to to one thing that that you said. Um, talking about your experience with flesh and blood that was mostly from a to perspective or facilitating events. Are you a player as well, or are are you? Did you get in to be sort of a TO slash judge slash facilitator of events, and is that your primary function and interaction with the game still nowadays? So at first, definitely, it was more of a. Uh, some of my locals wanted me to run the tournament as a tournament organizer and as a judge, uh, a person who gets to schedule the events and whatnot. Um, but then after watching the game, playing it a little bit, I actually ended up falling in love with playing the game. Mm. And I watched the game more than I've watched Magic basically any time ever. Uh, I play the game a good amount. Uh, I have pulled back a little bit recently due to the amount of work and travel that I'm doing. Uh, but I still love to play the game. I still collect the game and I'm trying to get an entire playset of the game with cold foil equipment specifically. Wow, that's uh, that's quite quite a goal. And ha are you setting any time restrictions on that cold fire? Are you talking all the way back to to, to the <laughs> beginning for your collection? Um, I'm going to skip the first three sets uh, just for price reasons. Uh, I yep. feel like the monetary value of getting cold foils from those sets is uh, not nearly necessary for me. That's totally reasonable. Yeah. Uh, it, it's funny because I, I did the exact same thing. It's uh, cold foil or maximum rarity for each set, except for the first three. Mm. And and Dynasty has broken me right now. I'm <laughs> I'm uh, I'm taking a bit of a break from that. But no, that's that's great. And okay, it, it's interesting that you, that you said that that you, that you did fall in love with uh, flesh and blood, not only from a a play perspective, but also from a um or sorry that that you fell in love with flesh and blood from not only a judging perspective but also from a, a playing perspective it is the other games that you judge uh i believe that's pokemon and magic mm -hmm. would you say that you're primarily like you you play those less or or is it about the same situation for for those games as well uh when i was judging a lot for magic on a grander scale uh i played almost weekly uh, i would play in modern tournaments uh or occasionally if i was running a standard tournament i'd buy a hundred dollar standard deck or something along that line um but i have not actually played in a sanctioned magic tournament in probably about a year uh if mm. not longer uh pokemon i play online i do not play physically at all uh although i also only run our local tournaments i don't judge uh larger events for that either i see and and one thing that sometimes and i, I don't hear it too often when it comes to flesh and blood but I, I have heard it before some people say that being a judge in flesh and blood will help you become a better player 
And I, I guess for someone like your, yourself, you are one of the most experienced and, and well-respected judges for Flesh and Blood. Like, do you think there's a lot of truth to that or is it overstated? Like, where if you heard someone telling someone else, oh, you should study to be a judge, it'll help you be a better player, what would you say to that? I would say that would be true for Magic, definitely. In Flesh and Blood, Honestly, no. Um, I think that if you understand the base mechanics of the game and you practice your deck after learning the base mechanics and maybe some of the niche rulings or niche interactions in your deck, the weird lines of play that come out of knowing the minutia of the rules really doesn't happen in Flesh and Blood very often. Um, somebody else will discover them and you will be able to be a better player if you put more of your time and effort into learning the deck or your matchups better. Okay, no, that's that, That's really interesting to hear you say that, and perhaps that's one reason why I hear that phrase a little bit less when it comes to Flesh and Blood. Could you just give me, again, a, a real elevator pitch this time about <laughs> perhaps why, uh, why it's different between Magic? Is Magic just more complex when it comes to the different, uh, you know, priority windows? Or, I, I guess, help me understand why, why that could be. Yeah, um, so it's kind of, if you look at how either illusionist or mechanologist play, where they have a lot of permanence on the board that you have to pay attention to, and they interact with each other a lot of different ways. Uh, Magic, through its now 30 years, has many, many permanents on the board, and each of them can interact in different ways. And they are more creative with their text than Flesh and Blood is. So this ends up being where you have more objects interacting at the same time, whereas Flesh and Blood, you rarely reach more than three. Right. Okay. No, that's that. That's really interesting. Is that perhaps why the magic rules um, is 600 pages? It's something about bending over backwards for a lot of things that don't really work in a trading card game anymore, and magic just uh. pretends like they have to. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll move on a, a little bit. We'll, we'll put a lot of pins in everything you said about living uh, in Oregon, in the little community uh, that you have, um, and as, as well as the LGS they work at. But before we dive into those serious topics, I do have to ask you one more question. I see you posting on Discord about Monster Hunter all the time. I don't mm -hmm. know what Monster Hunter is, um, but it seems like everyone does, so... Can, can you just tell me what that is? Is it like Pokemon or? <laughs> uh, so Monster Hunter is a, uh, if you're familiar with the Dark Souls series, uh, imagine a Dark Souls boss fight. Uh, Monster Hunter is that, but an MMO, but not. It's uh, a game made by Capcom. You just fight bosses. That's the entire game. Okay. Would, would you recommend uh, Monster Hunter? I mean, some people play games, but they they hate them and they don't recommend them <laughs> to people, but other people embrace them and love them. Like, would you recommend people look into Monster Hunter? Or If you are a fan of games that require a very long grind, yes. Uh, if you are not a fan of a game that requires a grind, like an MMO or uh, Korean RPGs often have... Right. especially MMORPGs have awful grinds and monster hunter has something similar, but not nearly that bad. Uh, it does require on a newer person's entry level, sort of about 60, 70 hours for you to complete what I call the tutorial. 
and then you get to end game it's like leveling from zero to 100 and some mmo basically and then you start the actual game wow so yes and no standard mmo practice yeah so grabbing one of those pins that felix was talking about you mentioned that you're from a smaller or a city of about 70,000 people. Can you expand on about the flesh and blood in the community in your area? Yeah. Uh, so initially we started with only four, maybe five people. Um, after getting some of the events started at the store that I work at, uh, we have grown the community from that four or five to that group's group of friends. We got close to 16 or so for a while. And then when Starvo hit the metagame, everybody got tired of playing the game. Yeah. And so we lost a few to that, uh, as well as some other factors. And now we have a slightly different group. They saw this game getting played, and they're like, okay, well, what's this? Um, and we have enough time and staff availability to teach people. We have Irodex just chilling on the table in the room, uh, and we'll have a staff member teach people. And we now have a very, very healthy commoner and blitz community that has started to get into classic constructed uh, due to one of the members being a big proponent of trying to grow the game. Uh, and so we regularly have somewhere between eight and 16 uh, two ish days a week, which is very, very fun. Nice. Are you the only store that's running fab events in, in your city? We have two. Um, one of the members that convinced me to start running uh, events for flesh and blood is running the events over there. Uh, the store doesn't, really officially do anything outside of whatever he does for them basically right okay yeah and so the the people that play the game are they newer primarily or they come from other backgrounds we have i'd say about a 50 50 mix actually um we have some people who've played pokemon and other card games i am i think the only magic player that i'm aware of mm. uh we have a few people that just recently got into card games or the interest in card games and flesh and blood was their first, uh, including uh, my coworker who I just randomly decided to teach how to play. And yeah. she ran with it really quickly. Nice. Does that, does that feel like it makes your scene a little bit more casual than competitive? I would say so. Uh, but me being a more competitive person and then some of the other members just being more naturally competitive and outgoing, uh, we do definitely have a bit of uh, competitive, I guess, a uh, little bit more of a competitive feel to us, but we definitely do have uh, mostly just casual players. Yeah. I'm really impressed by Flesh and Blood's ability to attract what, what I would say is not just a former or disaffected Magic player. Um, sometimes I hear, oh, Magic made this mistake or they're going to lose players because of this and they're just going to go to flesh and blood. But I, I don't personally see that being borne out in reality. I, I mean, similar to what you just described, Ryan, our scene is is some people that came from Magic, but most, I think, are, are not, which mm -hmm. I, I guess is interesting just comparing our local experience to to what we might, uh, might read online or, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you look at the average player who attends things like Callings or the PTs or Worlds, uh, I actually only recognize two, maybe three of them from large Magic events. Um, former Pro Tour players. That's like literally the only people I can uh, think of that used to play Magic. Nice. So with this, the size of your city, do you have access to 
or I guess, are you getting like skirmishes and tier two events uh, in an yeah. area? Uh, definitely around the area, uh, us specifically in Corvallis, we get uh, skirmishes. Yes, uh, we have gotten one Road to Nationals event. Um, and generally, the cities around us are twice as large or even larger. Portland is only an hour and a half away by car. So generally, they get all of the ProQuests and the Road to Nationals events. Uh, and then maybe one store that's south of us that has roughly 200,000 people, I think. Does it have like any feeling of isolation that way that you are like an hour away from the major events or is it still you're still close enough that the travel time isn't that big of a deal? Um, a little bit of both. Uh, it definitely feels like the travel distance for more local like tier one uh, events is definitely difficult. Uh, so we used to have one person who lived about 30 minutes away. He would drive to our armories. Uh, we had a couple people who did the same thing from a different city 30 minutes away. Uh, yeah. But that seems to be the maximum distance people would be willing to travel. For the Tier 2 stuff, it definitely feels like we're a little bit on our own little island of islands in a way. Uh, but people still very much travel uh, to our events from Portland uh, or from down in Eugene, that 200,000 city. Yeah, we have a kind of a similar issue, I guess, in that people will drive, only a handful of people will drive like the three hours for a Tier 2 event. Like we don't get a big... Uh, grouping of people outside the city mm -hmm. so we we touched a little bit on the fab community and i i'm very excited to ask you this question ryan because you have a lot of perspective when it comes to being immersed in different card game communities be it magic or pokemon and flesh and blood mm -hmm. and one of the things that seems to always make its rounds online is that the flesh and blood community uh be it in person or online be it via discord or twitter or anything else is that we're somehow more mature or more positive or more wholesome or nicer or something like that compared to to other card game communities um and i guess just opening question is this true is it not is it partially true what do you think You'll hear this from me a lot, uh, a little bit of both. Um, I do believe that as a whole, the flesh and blood community is a bit nicer or more receptive as uh, like a player judge relationship goes. The player to player relationship also seems to be more positive, more interested in growing the game itself, enjoying the game, uh, which adds a positivity to the events as well as the player interactions on basically any level. Um, this is something that is not the case for pretty much any other card game. Pokemon a little bit from my experience, but uh, definitely I would say yes with some caveats. Okay, no, that's that's really good to hear. Um, our, our previous guest, uh, Fred, shared that it could be the fact that we're a little bit older um, on average than something like Pokemon or, or Magic. And again, ourselves not having the, the cross perspective between the the different scenes, is that borne out in reality? Um, I'd say the average age is probably pretty similar to uh, larger Magic events. Like Grand Prix had a similar 20s, 30s, some 40s, some teens uh, kind of bell curve for their average age. 
Well, that's that. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know, Shay, if you you can share a similar story, but one of the reasons why I was a little bit hesitant to get into flesh and blood or any card game is because, as a board gamer, there was always a stigma about the card players, and mm-hmm. you know they're mean, they're competitive, yep. they smell bad, <laughs> they're going to insult you and laugh at you and shark you out of trades and and all this stuff. Um, I mean, I, I never had that experience in Flesh and Blood. Uh, but again, I'm just wondering, is that because Flesh and Blood is special or is it because some of these criticisms or perceptions of, of other scenes is a little bit overblown? I don't know, Shay, did you have the same fears? Yeah, I had a few of the reservations at the um, with jumping into the game like that. You, you hear those stories. But again, I think it's just the, the maturity that is the game is attracted through maybe it's it's 16 rating or the art style that it doesn't necessarily appeal to a younger generation i think that the more mature audience that we're gathering um really sees that we understand that for this game to grow we need more people to join it it's that simple and i think that's why it feels like the community more so actively makes players experiences positive as opposed to a negative like we know Mm -hmm. that if it's positive that you're going to spend more money into this hobby because we want this hobby to stick around that definitely makes sense yeah is is there any kind of baggage that communities accumulate over time because magic has 30 years i believe of of history (laughs) but with any kind of of scene or any kind of community lasting for long enough maybe there's certain things that are less desirable or maybe the community becomes resistant to change. You've, you've been in the magic scene for quite a number of years now, Ryan, just uh, based on what you've told us. I mean, is that something that, that you've noticed or, or am I, again, being com- completely blind to, to that from my end? I'm, I'm just trying to make some connections here. Yeah, I think uh, the longer game exists, the more baggage it gains over years such as uh even from a legal sense or from a cultural sense uh magic has very strict uh rules on determining winners uh improperly determining winners due to its history as a borderline gambling game due to the anti-mechanic uh that they got rid of many years ago Mm. um and so it has some legal baggage due to that but then also some cultural baggage from the sort of like grungy, gross 90s local game store uh, style, the mom and pop shop instead of the now what some people are kind of used to with the, say, Mox Boarding House, where it's a a real experience to walk into the store. It's very nice, very clean, very well kept. And then it also has a little bit of uh, other cultural baggage where magic players tend to be more willing to speak their mind about complaints or things that could become better. And I feel like Flesh and Blood has not really had the time to really have those bits of baggage grow inside the community. And the uh, the positivity is acting sort of like a, uh, I guess, a base to that acid in a way. That's really interesting to hear. And it, it is a reminder, as you know, I sometimes make the mistake of browsing Twitter and I see that maybe there is a little bit of uh, a, a, a little bit of bad stuff uh, seeping in but certainly nothing compared to all the good interactions and and the stuff that does truly make you smile on a day-to-day basis still mm-hmm. it re- it reminds me to just uh, 
continue to be protective of of that community and and yeah i guess if if you had any or if you had any advice just to the flesh and blood community based on your experience with other communities do you do you have a a quick thing about how how to keep it that way ryan yeah let's try to keep that to one sentence uh keep the positivity and if you don't have something nice to say don't say it that is a cliche but it is what this game has is good gameplay good players and kind players with positive experience and positive outlooks if that stays there my comment about the positivity being a base to that asset is honestly what i think is a big part of what is keeping this game alive awesome totally couldn't agree more Speaking of fab related to other card game communities, sometimes the online chatter is that fab isn't very profitable from a bottom line perspective for an LGS compared to like magic or Pokemon or even sports cards. As someone with insider knowledge, can you shed some of the light on if this is true or not? Yeah, I can definitely say that a large part of the bottom line for local game stores is a new Pokemon release, a new Yu-Gi-Oh release, a new Magic release, which seems to happen every other week these days, mm-hmm. or a new pre-release event. Uh, pre-release events are very profitable for stores, and it is very difficult for a local game store who doesn't have the financial backing of a large e-commerce company such as the store I work at uh, or the financial market of somebody who's just passionate and willing to lose that money uh it's not necessarily that flesh and blood will lose you money it is just going to be that it will be if you look at the square footage of your flesh and blood product and you look at the money it could be making by having a different product there uh flesh and blood is less profitable in that respect currently from a game store perspective but as the game grows it gets more popular the more popular it gets the more money you make on it Uh, And if you solidify yourself as an early part of that community, people will recognize you as the store to go to. Uh, And that was one of the reasons that I decided to carry flesh and blood uh, singles in the store that I work at as well. You are probably one of the few stores that we know that physically carry singles. Actually, now that you mention it, like locally, we have one store that is kind of carrying singles. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be very popular. Um, do you, what do you think is maybe why stores aren't doing singles or what drew you into drawing, uh, selling singles? So I think, uh, a thing that a lot of people are worried about with the singles market is that a lot of players will open booster boxes for their cards, or a lot of people will just buy cards online because they are working adults for the most part. And so that's the most convenient thing for them to do. And then on top of that, if you are getting into the singles market of a game that isn't very popular, uh, it is also volatile in the way that if this game goes away, your large investment in the singles is not very liquid compared to the booster boxes that you can sell pretty easily. Fab events like armories or skirmishes or ProQuest worthwhile, um, or are they a burden? That, I think, depends on the game store. Um Events are my passion, and so I never see an event type, whether it be like a Pokemon League Challenge or a League Cup, which are similar to like an Armory or like a Skirmish, or even a ProQuest or a Regional Championship Qualifier for Magic. I never see those as burdens. I see those as opportunities to grow as a marketing experience. Um, If I give 
players outside of my city or inside of my city a good experience and they feel like that event was something that they really liked uh, going to, then they will continue to show up, buy sleeves, buy singles and other things at the store or just attend events at the store. Yeah, just to to pull on that a little bit further, um, one thing that um, that gets posted sometimes online is criticisms even of, of stores that charge a higher entry fee to something like a ProQuest or pre-release or an RTN or something, but don't offer any additional pricing, for example, mm. um, on top of what was provided by by LSS. And I'm just wondering from a store owner's perspective like yourself, could you shed some light? Like, is, is something like that required to keep the profitability um, there if you were to weigh that against hosting a Magic event or something like that? Is, is that potentially why that could be happening? Uh, that definitely could be a part of it. Uh, me personally, uh, if I see somebody complaining about a store that is, say, charging the maximum amount for a ProQuest and they aren't adding very much, if at all, to the base prizes that LSS has, I may ask the store personally and be like, what is the reasoning behind this? Because they may not know that their attendance is going to drop significantly due to that. As I mentioned for my store events, uh, I run them as a marketing cost, not a way to make money. Uh, mm -hmm. Say I just ran a regional championship qualifier this weekend and I was expecting to lose money and made like 50 bucks. And that's not including my mm -hmm. wages at the store either. Um, that was just including the head judge and the cost of the prizes at our cost, not at what I would have sold those products for. And I personally think that a better run event with better prizes with an okay entry fee or even a maximum entry fee and throw a lot of prizes out there is a better marketing experience and a better experience for the players. You can make money, just incidental money as a store by running these events by players buying sleeves, snacks, or buying cards if you happen to buy uh, singles from players or packs if you have them decks if you have them so many things that i don't think the event itself needs to make money and it worries me when somebody does this as a store but that was sort of the other side of the coin that i mentioned where it depends on the type of store some people see events as a way to get, uh, make money but then sell other things at a lower cost than we do yeah it's a really really good outlook uh i think i as a player i think that would ring true going into an event that I feel like I'm getting my quote unquote money's worth. I would be more positive walking into the store that day and probably be a little bit more liberal with my money because I'm happy. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I feel like I'm just getting shafted because I'm paying full price for the event and if I don't do well, I don't get anything in return. So I can, mm -hmm. I can definitely see where you're coming from the the marketing aspect of it. And, and I don't know if it has to do with the the way your the logistics works of, of having a larger company backing you that maybe some smaller LGSs don't feel like they have that that wiggle room to make that chance, which is why mm -hmm. maybe they end up not supporting it as much as the player base would like. Yeah, I can definitely see the lack of wiggle room, as you mentioned, be a bit of a problem for some of these stores where they're not making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month or uh, something along that line to be able to budget out a little bit of like a $1,000 loss for these events. Because you do make that thousand dollars back very quickly mm -hmm. but 
seeing that negative 1000 hurts a lot of those smaller stores. Uh, and it's not a very easy hole to come out of if you do it every three months. And probably also not easily recognizable where when you lost that thousand dollars and then down the road, you're getting that trickle economics Correct. for you. Yeah. yeah. I'm taking a step back. We kind of um, glossed over this, but do you think that fab is a tough sell for the average LTS to pick up on just economics alone? Yes, absolutely. I was worried just from my experience with trying other card games. Like I tried force of will. I tried Y Schwartz. I've tried so many other things. And none of their organized play systems lasted very long. None of the games have lasted very long, uh, minus with the select few players. And from an economic standpoint, you don't want to buy into a flash in the pan, make a tiny bit of money. You want to continue to invest in the games that will continue to grow over time and the products that you can continue to carry over time. So if my city or town where I'm in has a store that's not really willing to commit to a game like fab because of those because they've been burnt burnt before like you mentioned do you have any like advice on how i could approach the store owner to maybe encourage them that um to maybe look at the product a little harder this go around because it has been around for maybe three years and the organized play system seems to seems to be there do you have any advice on how we could you know sell it so i'm trying to think about how the community that i have convinced me um and i'm very much a skeptic and somehow still got on the this train uh so it'd be and i think that one of the things that really sold me on it was the armory promos just your typical like fnm for magic or your weekly tournaments or your league challenges that kind of stuff for pokemon the armory promos were so interesting unique the fact that they only come from an armory and they are a cold foil something that is uh, valuable in its own right or is difficult to acquire and fun to acquire uh, really adds a selling point to carrying the game if you do run tournaments the store gets rewarded by lss uh, in a way to be able to reward the players which by product will reward you as the store uh, both financially, if you rake a little bit, even if it's like 10 to 20% off the top of your entry fees for armories, or uh, even if you charge like $5 and then you hand everybody a booster pack and then they're playing for armory promos, most people are going to be fine with something like that. So I think selling it as a easy win in that respect with the promos, but then also an easy win of Ira decks are free through your distributor if they have any. Being able to run, learn to play events through yourself as a volunteer, uh, putting a lot of that pressure on you as the person selling it uh, to the store. Not necessarily saying you should work for free, but being that person to sort of be the boots on the ground volunteer to grow your community as a whole will be a, an easier sell than just saying, hey, you should carry this game and start running tournaments for it. Because then that puts a lot of the pressure on the store to do so. Yeah. Any tips on how the community can do that to help alleviate some of that pressure for the store? And just asking the store like, hey, can you use your marketing channels, your social media to say, hey, we're going to be demoing this new trading card game that or maybe not so new now that it's three years old ish. This cool trading card game that has a good organized play circuit with really neat weekly event promos on this date that kind of thing. Uh, and then you just have some printed out Iridex. If you don't have physical Iridex, 
if you have physical ira decks or classic battles decks to hand to the players uh, that do attend this is something that is very easy they can also advertise during their magic tournaments their magic uh their pokemon tournaments their Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments that kind of community and try to get that cross-pollination if you can uh, it is something that i think will sell itself after people play it yeah, one thing that I like to say is that the a community can be full of leaders. It's not just the the TO. It's not just the LGS. Um, the more leaders that are boots on the ground and really taking care of the community, but also helping grow the game, the better. And it could be ten out of ten people or a hundred out of a hundred people. So much the better. So yeah. that's uh, it's great to hear that from you as well. Um, just keeping in uh, in theme with community. Um, I, I mentioned at the very beginning uh, that that you're in charge of the judge community representative program. Mm-hmm. And this was actually the first time I, I got to meet you as well. Can you just let us know what this program is and, and how you got involved to, to be in charge of it? Yeah. Uh, so currently there are uh, 33 total judge community representatives. Uh, if you count the lead members as a part of that number, Uh, There are 27 regions that each have a community representative, and then there are six leads, uh, two for each, uh, I believe, what Klaus called the geo regions, which is the Americas, so North, Central, and South America, as well as Europe as the second one, and then uh, East Asia, as well as Australia, New Zealand, etc., as the other one there. This is a program that is intended to be the first barrier for communication if judges in those regions would like to learn more about the game or stores would like to learn more about the game they can reach out to their local judge community representative and say hey i'm from this town do you know anybody nearby or somebody willing in my region to talk to me about this game uh or mentor me if i'm looking to become a judge uh that was sort of one of the ideas as well as being a barrier between LSS and the community, uh, not necessarily as a wall, but as a a membrane that allows only certain information to really get through so that LSS isn't bogged down by, hey, I'd like to become a judge. How do I do that kind of questions? Uh, Or, hey, how does this rule interaction work in their email inboxes? The way that I got into it is very simple, honestly, just running large events with the Channel Fireball folks. And I learned through my friend Klaus uh, that I've now known for roughly six years, uh, who is the judge program manager for LSS, uh, that he was getting that position. And I told him, hey, if there is anything that you need, if a position that you think I'd be well suited for, if if that be the player community, uh, sorry, player conduct committee, the judge conduct committee, or say uh, the JCR system that he ended up creating, uh, if he needed somebody for that, that I was there for him if he needed that kind of assistance. Wow, that that is really awesome. And is this type of system unique to Flesh and Blood compared to some other trading card games, to your knowledge? Or how, how are they structured there? Uh, it is very similar, actually. Um, so okay. Magic had previously, before Judge Academy, had a regional coordinator system. Uh, and the regional coordinators were functionally what the judge community representatives are. Um, and then there were some steps above the JCRs. I recently learned through my Pokemon regional coordinator that they exist. So Pokemon also has this sort of 
barrier between the Pokemon Company International and the judge community in the form of their regional coordinators as well. Uh, and it functions very similarly. All right. And I mean, the JCR program has been live for how long now? We made selections in December and January of 2022 and 2023. That was an arduous process due to the fact that we had, uh, we had six people that were selecting 27 candidates uh, or final candidates out of a total pool of more than 100. Oh, yeah. uh, so it was a lot of interviews. Oh, yeah. No, that's that, that that's awesome. And it, so it's been less than half a year. But uh, have you seen the benefits of, of this uh, program already? I think so. Uh, there are a few people, at least in the Americas regions, that have done a very fantastic job with um, sort of making this role their own. I did leave them a lot of leeway, and I told them, I am not going to tell you to stop doing something unless it is very questionable for you to be doing it, such as telling a store, hey, you have to have a judge and you have to pay them this much or something along that line where you're essentially telling a store how to run themselves. I said get out of the money business be there as a resource but otherwise do what you want with this and there are definitely some success stories like some of the uh jcrs have been reaching out to stores to say proactively hey i hear you were selected for a road to nationals if you need any assistance with finding a judge for your event let me know so that i can reach out to judges in your area to find one for you if you are not familiar with this process uh, and that is something that I mentioned to a lot of the JCRs ahead of time saying like stores may reach out to you for this if they know that you exist uh, because of how LSS requires a judge for the events, uh, which I personally love. Uh, having a dedicated person running these definitely adds a bit of professionality and love into the game. Yeah, no, it's it's so great to hear that this program has already had a positive impact and and what a excellent group of individuals. I, I did have a chance to meet quite a few of them mm -hmm. at Indy. Um, yeah, I can't, can't say enough about them. Just for the, the near-term future, just to wrap up our, our little Q&A about the JCR program, is there, do, do you have any just overarching goals uh, as you hit the one-year mark for the JCR program? Anything beyond just keeping doing what you're doing? I would like to personally step in with each of the community representatives in at least my region so that I can touch base with them and figure out if there is anything that we can improve on or if there is anything that I can do to help them or if they need a different way to communicate. It's very simple. If the judge community representative is reachable and is known, then this system will succeed. And realistically, that is the goal. And if I can facilitate that goal for any one person in the uh, community representatives, then I would feel like that accomplishment on its own is worth it. Excellent. Let's move into something a little bit more fun, I guess. <laughs> Have you, <laughs> if you were able to, let's say you were selected for a leadership position or something like a calling or a larger event, can you you tell me what it would what it's kind of like starting from the moment that you're told about your acceptance? Yeah. Um, so the moment that I told uh, get told that I am 
accepted for a lead role uh, at an event. I am excited. I purchased my hotel and flights. Uh, if I haven't already done that ahead of time, I figure out who else is going to that event and then I start coordinating with them. Then in terms of planning the event itself, uh, the head judges have uh, a bit of leeway with the tournament organizer, at least in the US, for the positions that certain people are put into, uh, say, the end of round team or the paper team or the battle hardened head judge or something along those lines, which ends up with a final schedule being posted to the staff that is accepted for the event. After receiving that information, uh, I look at what I'm responsible for each day. If I am a floor judge, uh, I kind of ignore that day because my team lead will tell me what I need to do that day. Uh, and I've done enough of these to the point that I don't need to think about my daily work for that kind of stuff. But if I am leading a team that I haven't led a lot, and even if I have, uh, I still feel the need to prepare a plan for the whole day uh, from start to finish, whether it be I show up at this time, I do these things, I ask these questions of the TO or my head judge, and I have this laid out, uh, whether physically or just mentally, and it really adds a peace of mind to me uh, that I know that I have a plan, and even if a wrench gets thrown into that plan, I can fall back to it after taking that wrench out or just kind of roll with the punches and still keep in mind the reasoning behind that plan and try to execute the best I can out of that philosophy. So do you have a favorite leadership role? Anything that has a lot of logistics. So the end of round team or the deck checks team or the product team, honestly, I think is my favorite. If I have to choose one, the product or the logistics team is typically responsible for setting up the whole draft process uh, that day, as well as handing out any uh, like goodie bag stuff at the beginning of the day. So the team that was in charge of this at the most recent Pro Tour was led by John Brian McCarthy, and I was on his team, and we set up the draft or coordinated setting up the draft, as well as the playmat, the Arknight Shard playmat handed out at the beginning of the day. Uh, and also the wristbands, etc. Those logistically heavy, more task-focused and time-crunch-focused things that add a bit of stress to my day are the things that I personally really enjoy. I thrive under that stress. Uh, that's also why I like these competitive events, because that extra stress from that competitive nature or the extra sharky players really gets me going. Nice. So do you like being the head judge of like the marquee events or do you prefer being like a support judge? Um, so currently the largest event that I have head judged for flesh and blood was about, I want to say it was 90 or so players uh, with a battle hardened in Portland and head judging these events is while fun. It is its own logistical challenge in that way that I was describing where it has that added stress mm. uh, and the buck does eventually stop with you in those cases. Um, the team lead is a nice balance of adding that nice bit of stress, but then not adding too much stress that I'd kind of get bogged down a little bit. Uh, and personally, I feel like uh, with my current judge career trajectory, uh, I will likely end up being more of an appeals judge, more focused person, uh, or the support judge in that re uh, respect, where it's 
the head judge is making all these logistical decisions and I am there to assist them in any way that I can while also being the overall gopher in any difficult situations that they need, whether it be like a difficult cheating investigation that they need assistance with or a rules investigation or a very difficult rules interaction that they aren't 100% certain on and I feel very confident about my rules and so they can use me as that resource. Uh, but I also believe that my judging style is very malleable. And that's another thing that a lot of appeals judges really focus on is being able to match their head judge in different ways, like these weird gray areas in policy. If I can match the other head judge, that will be very advantageous for everybody. Adds that nice bit of consistency for all the players and the judges. Nice. I have one more final question on this section. Do you have something fun behind the scenes that you can kind of share about being in charge? Uh, <laughs> it's we look like we know what we're doing, but I trust that trust us when we say that we don't. Uh, it's kind of a fun thing to really get put into these positions, and I try to make sure that nobody sees what i'm doing wrong uh and if it the the age-old adage that i've been told time and time again is if the players and the floor judges don't notice it didn't happen um <laughs> so like i can make dumb mistakes like not taking down the pairings quick enough uh which may cause a little bit of confusion later on in the round but if nobody really sees that it happened it didn't happen uh the end all be all goal is just don't let it affect the day in a negative way. I think that's probably my funnest like behind the scenes yeah. thing. You 100% described what it's like being a parent. <laughs> like it's very true. You, when you I my daughter's 8 and just some of the things that we go through I'm like my parents had no idea what they're doing. They're just winging it and you just make the decisions and like you said you just try and make it so that nobody knows there's things aren't going right and you just try and stay calm and move on. Yeah, it's very much playing the the best turn that you can with the cards that you were dealt, right? Yeah. Uh, you try to make your best educated guess or you try to make sure that there's some logic behind your decision making. But sometimes the end goal is not <laughs> not ideal. Yeah. Well, and, and you just touched on this, um, Ryan some of these more difficult investigations or making calls about cheating or even something like unsportsmanlike conduct or aggressive behavior, that's something that thankfully doesn't come up very much or at all locally uh, for Shay and I. But I, I imagine for someone like yourself, it's just another Tuesday, uh, just <laughs> doing these investigations and, and handing out the penalties as appropriate. Um, when I... As a floor judge and talking to Fred last week about it, there's always a certain level at which the situation becomes too big. And mm -hmm. that's when we go to the head judge or to the appeals judge to say, okay, this now involves a cheating investigation. This now involves an IP. Now I need to get someone else involved. But when you're in that leadership role, I guess the buck does stop with you. So I guess two sides to this question. Number one, I guess, how do you deal with that pressure? Is it just the amount of experience that you have? And, and number two, for someone like ourselves, how would you, I guess, any advice that you would have for us to to be more prepared for situations like that? Ooh, that second question's hard. Uh, we're going to start with the first one. Sure. 
So I think it is a bit of my experience that definitely makes these a lot easier for me. But also a, a large part of it is that I don't have an aversion to conflict. I very much am willing to be that person that jumps on a grenade. And I explain that to some of my team leads when I say like, hey, if you have something that really needs done and it's not a fun thing to do, throw me at it. Like if it's going to ruin somebody else's day, just throw me at it. Uh, it will not affect me, whether it be having to disqualify a player for what we believe to be them intentionally cheating, or if it is conducting that investigation for a head judge, if they are too busy to do so and they're in one of their own and they delegate that to me, it is something that I already do at least a few probing questions for that kind of thing almost every single call I'm in. Uh, if there is an advantage that I can see from a player making that mistake, I will start asking questions that will prove either their innocence to me or make me go, I need to ask more questions. And if I need to ask more questions and things still don't line up, I immediately go get one of the head judges if I can. Uh, because they are typically better at that than I am, or their decision is the one that gets to be the thing that really ends this, uh, and it's not mine, so it's better that they have all the cards instead of me trying to transfer those cards to them. And so due to that bit of that non-aversion to conflict, I'd say that I'm comfortable because of that, not necessarily just the experience, but by their powers combined, I have no problem with those kinds of right. difficult situations. Aggressive behavior is very... It's always stressful. Uh, it is not easy to deal with, and sometimes even the authorities need to be brought in for it, which is tough. But uh, do you mind repeating the second question? First of all, uh, Shay, was there something you wanted to jump oh, in? Yeah, I would just, I don't know if it's the easy to answer, but do you, can you like kind of give me like a little bit of a list of your probing questions? Like, so as somebody that's new to judging, I don't have a strategy or a plan going into a difficult non-rules related situation so if somebody is accused of cheating i don't even know how to approach that situation to figure out um if there's truth to the accusations or to even prove that somebody was or wasn't cheating sure so there is a a couple articles that go over a generic way of doing this that i can possibly recall uh, I don't recall the exact name of the person that wrote them, but it is a series of articles on the Magic Judge blog called Collateral Truths. Uh, and this idea of collateral truths is that when you are interacting with the players at the table and they explain the factual or the their side of what happened from the past that caused this error, you are given what they believe to be their truth. And with that truth, you can take it at face value and believe them. Or if you have any question about that truth, you can think about different actions or different requirements for that truth to be factual. Say, for example, if a player says that they put their pitch to the bottom of their deck, but had not finished the rest of their turn, uh, the end phase of their turn, then you can look and figure out, well, okay, have you done that? That collateral truth of I have not finished my end phase because I have not arsenaled the card. I still have one card in hand. If you need to look at, have we cleaned up the combat chain? Maybe uh, that kind of on a simple level is a collateral truth. It's if C is the final end point and we started at A, B needs to be true. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can use that to your advantage of 
what would tell me that this player is cheating or what would tell me that this player is innocent. And if you can sneakily get the player to give you that information without tipping your hat saying, I'm investigating you for cheating, mm. uh, then that can help you out a little bit. In terms of specifics, uh, I could go into that for hours. But generically, where are we? What has happened since the point of the error? Those are my two very first questions that I ask. Excellent. Thank you. You make it sound so easy, Ryan. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's what eight years does to a person. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, the the second question that I did have for you was was quite similar, I think, to, to Shay's question. It was for, for someone like Shay or myself with, uh, well, quite a bit of experience at, at local mm -hmm. level, but maybe we're going to get tapped to to head judge a very large RTN uh, or a battle hearted or something like that. And how would you suggest judges making that next step gain that confidence to, uh, you know, to, to start looking at something like unsportsmanlike or cheating or, or something like that stuff that doesn't come up all the time and may be uncomfortable. In terms of handling it from a logistical sense, keep an open mind and be aware that you may make decisions that are incorrect, but you believe in the moment are correct. Uh, be willing to be wrong. It is something that every single one of us is human. We are not perfect. We are not robots, despite the fact that the comprehensive rules believes we're robots. No player is, no judge is. Oh, yeah. And being willing to make mistakes but then learn from those mistakes is how a judge gets to the point that somebody like Ward Warren or Amanda Coots, myself are at. You end up getting these extra responsibilities or people reaching out to you to have you on a podcast because you've <laughs> been doing this for eight years. Um, it Just having that confidence and willingness to learn from those mistakes helps a lot and it adds a peace of mind that I'm going to do my best I recognize I may make mistakes. I'll write it down and learn from it later. But then from a sort of social way of how to handle that, imagine yourself or your opinion being from somebody else's perspective. Uh, this being, if you witness something where a player says something a little off color and maybe you don't take offense to it, but you think about how somebody else could potentially uh, and if you think that this is something that shouldn't be said, or if you believe that their actions were over the top, uh, maybe they ripped one of their cards in half in front of you and you feel like that was potentially aggressive, that is definitely something that you want to think about. And yes, that did happen to me. I can tell that story later, but uh, not not on the podcast. <laughs> um, the other bit is definitely take some deep breaths. I know that a lot of people have said that it is a cliche, but truly try to reduce that adrenaline rush, reduce that stress induced fight or flight nature and try to tackle it calmly, but not emotionally. Uh, if you tackle it from a way saying that policy dictates that this is called aggressive behavior, I need to be making sure that everybody feels comfortable in this event your actions have warranted me removing you from this event due to this. Sounds like today might not be your day to be playing flesh and blood. I'd like you to leave the store, please. 
Uh, granted, that final call is definitely from the store's obligation, not yours. But uh, as a person who has kicked a lot of people out of the store uh, due to certain behaviors, I use that phrase a lot. It's, I need to make sure that everybody feels comfortable. Your actions mm -hmm. have not let that be true. No, that's... That, that's really great to hear. And I guess my, my last question to you on, on this general topic would be how, how long did it take for you to, to build up that sort of instinct where you can take the emotion out of it to a certain extent and, and, and just make, make the call like that? Um, that's difficult uh, to answer. I probably would say a few years. I used to be a very emotional person. Uh, I did not like I had logic behind my thoughts, but I definitely let my emotions sort of drip into that logic. And through the experience I gained as a magic judge, I sort of uh, I, I don't want to say I lost that emotion, but I definitely uh, helped filter that out. And it is something that came true more so when I was interacting with my friends playing in my PQs or equivalent events, and I had to give them penalties that they earned, and I could not let my emotional uh, connection with them really get in the way of that, like giving game losses to my friends for a mark cards upgrade or giving a warning to them or a hidden card error fix feels very bad to receive as a player. Uh, at least in Magic. I know it also does in Flesh and Blood, but oh, yeah. uh, it's those like very heavily... Uh, punishing is not necessarily the word I want to use. Uh, maybe sort of game state fixing uh, or potentially detrimental, such as like an uh, intellect penalty, really is difficult to give to your friends. Yeah. And then that also lets it be that if you have any sort of negative experience with this player um, on a personal level, you can sort of by proxy use that same technique to remove your emotions away from the interaction nice. thanks yeah that's that's some heavy shit <laughs> <laughs> so something a little bit lighter then do you have a story that you can share about judging in your career that was maybe something fun or one of your favorite experiences oh i forgot to think about this oh sorry <laughs> So one of my favorite calls in Magic was a, a time period where a card would have the top of your deck revealed and a couple players through having a good time with each other and just in general playing pretty cleanly uh, and marking down each individual life total change somehow ended up with an upside down deck, which was really entertaining because the player just drew their revealed card as it should be because of this card that's in play but then noticed that their next card was already revealed. And they're like, huh, interesting. So that was one of my favorite, just individual ruling calls. Uh, we ended up saying it was looking at extra cards because the player fanned his deck out to show us that his deck was upside down. But <laughs> yeah, it was really, really funny. Brandon Welch, who is the person who certified me for uh, magic judging and also works in flesh and blood tournaments as well, uh, was with me during that event. So if you ever see him at an event, Feel free to poke him about it. It's both of our favorite calls and both of us were involved in it. But favorite stories from my judge career just in general probably has to be the Pro Tour in Lille. I got to lead the product team on, I believe that was Saturday of the Pro Tour. 
And it was a very, very fun logistical challenge for me. But then also I got to witness a friend of mine from California, Joe, be what was designated on the staff schedule as the Arsenal judge. And this Arsenal judge was a team lead that was available to do anything and everything. And that was a role that had not existed ever to my knowledge in Mm -hmm. any magic or flesh and blood event prior. And it was a very interesting sort of just gopher fixer role that is, I don't have somebody that I know can do this and it was forgotten or something. Please go do this. Uh, It was actually really, really neat to talk to Joe about that. So follow up to that. Has that position continued forward past Lil? Uh, No, it has not. (laughs) As much as I wish it had, I... I think that where we are at with the uh, different teams being designated, each individual task that does need to happen, or as John Brian McCarthy would put it, is on the critical path to finishing the day, uh, is designated in each team name uh, and each team duty. And so having somebody that is sort of that gopher isn't necessary most of the time. And if you have a more experienced floor judge that's on a team like paper, where they only have one task over the course of a day, you usually have uh, a person available to just be like that, that, oh shit, I need something done. I, I know you can do this thing, go do it. Yeah, cool. And I guess speaking of favorite stories, uh, do you have a favorite rules quirk or rules interaction in Flesh and Blood specifically? It used to be uh, the Rune Chant Spectra Quicken Spectra garbage, but once they eroded the tokens, they did exactly what I was hoping they would do, which mm-hmm. is make those trigger at the same time. Uh, knowing the difference between when a card has attacked and when a card has been played and when targets are made is two very different things, uh, both with weapons and playing cards. And that niche is early on in Flesh and Blood's rules history, uh, a little bit of a a nebulous topic for a lot of players, uh, because a lot of these players don't come from a a magic background or have a lot of magic rules knowledge. But this does make a lot of sense to me having that background where it's, I cast my card or I have played my card I chose targets during that process, therefore Spectre triggers. But things that say when I attack is not when this card resolves or is when this card resolves. And so those different time periods are very, very slightly different, but you have reached a slightly different layer of that membrane. And so it was a very fun interaction for me. So I guess we're, man, we're at like over an hour at this point, but we'll keep going. Um <laughs> Do you consider yourself a professional judge? Like, do other games, like, Fab's not very good at it, but do you see schedules for the other games that you judge, like, a year on in advance or anything like that? Like, do you plan your year to judge events? Historically, before the pandemic, I would say that I was a judge first and an LGS employee second, even though I spent more time working at the LGS. It is very difficult to make a living wage working only events. Uh, And I am lucky enough to have had a day job uh, multiple times that would let me take off 20 weekends in a year to go work large card game tournaments. And I see these as more of a hobby than I do a financial or a professional obligation. It is definitely more fun for me than it is anything else. Uh, That and the personal growth I achieve from it is something that is a large portion of why I do them as well. So yes and no. 
Do you think it would be a, a path that you would choose if it was an opportunity in the future? If I could team lead, head judge, appeals judge, or floor judge a large card game tournament three or four days out of the week, and it doesn't matter where it is, and I can make yeah. a living wage out of doing that, I probably would do that for a full-time job. It's a lot of traveling. It is a lot of traveling. <laughs> so so speaking of traveling, is, is traveling something that you enjoy uh, outside of judging, or it, did judging kind of make you come out of your shell for traveling i would say that i am not normally a person who tends to like to travel i very much am a, a homebody uh, born and raised in corvallis oregon i'm now almost 30 years old still stuck here uh, i don't really venture outside of corvallis very often but the judging large card game tournaments really opened my eyes to the ability of traveling. And I very much enjoy going to countries that are not Canada, not the U S not something who speaks English as their native language. Uh, and it is one of their secondary languages or not really a language they speak at all. I recently went to Japan just as a fun trip. And that was a absolute blast. Like I could not say go to Japan more. If you like beer, go to Belgium. Belgium has great beer. If you like fine dining, go to France. France has fantastic restaurants. Granted, most places do, but traveling is so much fun, even though I am a homebody. Uh, it is something that really breaks you out of your comfort shell if you are a homebody like me. Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. Well, as Shay mentioned, we have stolen so much of your time and we have just skimmed the surface on so many different topics that we could delve much deeper into. And I, I hope we do get the chance to do that again in the future. If I could just ask for one final question um, or one final answer from you, um, as someone with such a breadth uh, of experience across different games uh, for so many years, what's your top tip for community leaders or new judges trying to grow the game and get the most out of it that that you can share have passion i think is the simplest way i can put that if you have a lot of passion and you create forums for players or judges or tournament organizers to communicate with each other in a way that is very much feeling like a community that is something that naturally will feel very comfortable and very fun to have people interact with. And if you have that passion, and if you share that passion with other people by interacting with them, those people will naturally grasp onto and also share that passion with you over time. Thank you so much. And the last last question is, where can people get in touch with you if they would like to do so? Uh, if you would like to get in touch with me, the easiest way is honestly through Discord. I am chronically on the internet. Uh, if you add me on Facebook, Facebook Messenger is also a fantastic place. As Felix mentioned early in the podcast, my name is Ryan Wood. If you happen to find one with the quotation marks bagel in between the first and last name, that one's me. Uh, it's an old nickname I had in high school. On Discord, if you would like to add me, it's Grinch hashtag 1166. Uh, the G and the N are capitalized. I do believe that Discord requires that information. Um, mm. Don't worry, I just watched too much StarCraft where a lot of the players have random letters capitalized in their name and I copied that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you.
It was an absolute blast to be on this um, as my first experience being a guest on a podcast. Yeah, that's a good one. I know it's also dear to Shay's heart as a Viserai player, stacking <laughs> up those rune chants, clearing out those spectra. I spectras. still get asked questions about spectra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very Even good. With the change.